A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, Rational Security listeners. A quick note before we get started with this episode, we will once again be doing our year-end listener-submitted episode of the podcast than the week before New Year's. So if you have any topics you want to hear us discuss, any object lessons you want to share, be sure to email them to rationalsecurity at lawfareblog.com so we can include them in the episode. Thanks so much. Scott, so um, a little birdie, which was you 30 seconds ago, just told me that you have family heirloom tartan. And as you were describing that, Quinta came in and yelled, stop. Save it for the B-roll. So here and we here are. we are. <laughs> in the B-roll. As we so often do in our little conversation before we get started. <laughs> Indeed, I have an Anderson family target that my grandfather got on some trip to Scotland 50 years ago. I think it looks like this. I'm dropping a picture into our little chat window. It is not an attractive plaid, I will say. My grandfather had, I think, a kilt made out of it uh, and like a scarf and a hat. And it is, I'm colorblind, so it's very hard to tell for me to tell what colors these are, but I know I like they don't it. look natural together. It's like a, so it's like a yellow, so I don't know how to describe tartan. We have like some brown, light blue, yellow, red. I like it. It's a lot of colors. There's a lot it's going maybe, on. It's maybe a little too much. I do, there's an Anderson weathered option, which I really oh. quite like. <laughs> which is, which is, that's my, that's the option I've opted for in my life. Why yes. would I not opt that way? It's just, it's just how you look ever since having a child. It's just Anderson exactly. withered face. Grang, ragged around the edges. So this website will sell you a three-piece suit for $850 made entirely out of this Hell yes. fabric. It looks like the suit some sort of like hobo would would wear while riding the rails. Like I feel like I need I need a a bindle and a weird top hat with the top cut out of it, like a can. I think that's really what we're looking for here. You can get you can get a plaid flat cap for seventy two dollars. Well, hello, that's what I'm talking about. I feel like I feel like that is a big dad move is when you start wearing Legend of Beggar Vance caps. I feel like you have to achieve a certain <laughs> level of fatherhood to get there. I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but I'm close. You can also it looks like you could also buy plaid like pajamas for your kid. That'd be pretty fun. You can get you can get a, a wedding garter. Hey, hey, you can get plaid hair brooches. You can get a little hat that has like a bow on it. There are 23 pages of plaid swag. This is delightful. This is the most fun clothes shopping I've had since I went to the Renaissance Fair. Oh my God. Guys, 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 (laughs) everyone shut up because I just discovered the thing we have to all get, which is if you click on page 23, the Scottish plaid Highlander teddy bear. Oh, well, that's just cute. Oh my God. It has a kilt. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0. Well, now just Rational Security. We're dropping the 2.0. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here back with my two other regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled, as always, to be joined by one of our favorite repeat guests, Lawfare Executive Editor, Natalie Norpit. Orpit, Natalie, thank you so much for being back with us here today. 
Thanks for having me, guys. And and do tell, what's the story behind dropping the 2.0? Is this an assertion of superiority? I think it's a assertion of longevity. I also ran out of sequel titles a few months in. Uh, it turns out that it's really hard to come up with that many titles to turn into vague puns on rational security. Uh, and 52 in, uh, I called it quits. And now, you know, we're just back to rational security. I think that's okay. We never changed the logo. We never changed the song. Uh, we're just, uh, you know, just a, just a continuation of a tradition. I, I think we should actually go full totalitarian police state. And change that, rewrite the history and just deny that there ever was. It always <laughs> was. Who is this Ben Wittisk? I don't, I, he doesn't exist in the, in the book. It's anymore. always been it was, the three it was of all, us. We were always at war with Oceana. And we just have to like silently escort Ben out the back of a staff meeting, just like they did at the, at the CCP uh, Congress <laughs> a few months town, ago. Yeah. The huge in town, just walk as he looks confused and everybody else just looks dead straight ahead. <laughs> this is the plan. Look out, Ben, when you come back in town, watch your, watch your back. <laughs> well, until then, though, we have had a big week here in the law for offices with a lot of really interesting things happening in national security space. Actually, way more topics than we were able to get into this episode. But we picked three pretty interesting ones to walk through with you, the listener, for what we are calling the It Has a Kilt edition. For our first topic, topic one, Surly Intervention. Desperate circumstances in the island nation of Haiti have both Haitians and the international community seriously thinking about another international intervention, but no one seems excited about the prospect or eager to lead it. Where will these proposals lead? Topic two, what's the penalty for an equal substitution? Like a legal substitution, like the basketball penalty for people who watch sports. Don't bring sports none, ball into none this. Of you, none of you. None of you. sports ball into this sacred space. Scott, we've gone over it's this. about an athlete. I watch sports. I'm from Chicago, and I went to the University of Michigan. Okay. Obviously, I watched sports. One, Scott's just one, desperately trying one. to martyr himself. Exactly. I just want all the credibility I can get uh, for my masculinity. Because uh, it's the only source I get it. Good the luck. Biden administration finally negotiated the freedom of WNBA star Brittany Griner this past week, but at a steep cost. The freedom of notorious Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. And Griner left behind her another American, Paul Whelan, who has been in Russian prison since 2018. Was the trade worth making? How should the United States handle these difficult hostage-taking cases? And topic three, justice delayed is justice in stride. Nearly 34 years after the Pan Am 103 bombing, the Justice Department has secured custody over Abu Aguila Masood, a former Libyan intelligence operative believed to have built the bomb for and played a key role in that operation. Where are the proceedings likely to go towards justice from here? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. So we last talked about Haiti on this podcast in September. Since then, the situation has only gotten worse from an already really bad situation. Uh, Large parts of the country are completely controlled, uh, though if you can call it control, by violent gangs. Severe energy shortages are crippling the economy. This is a country in which there really isn't an electricity grid. Everything runs on portable generators, which means that fuel imports are really important. Uh, and those have been disrupted. Uh, and cholera, which is you know a disease that really only at this point comes up in a situation of real social collapse, you know where people just don't have access to basic safe drinking water, uh, is ripping through the population. And you know the main difference between the situation in September and now, in addition to the fact that it's just continuing to deteriorate, is that in October the government, uh, headed by uh, Ariel Henry, who is the sort of acting prime minister and president. Uh, The government requested foreign armed intervention, which is uh, obviously a dramatic step for any sovereign nation to take. 
Um, it doesn't appear that this is a particularly popular option with the Haitian population. There have been some protests against it. At the same time, obviously, it's difficult for obvious reasons to get any good polling on a, you know, in a situation like this. But certainly, this is not kind of a united desire on part of Haitians everywhere. And, you know, in terms of who would lead that armed intervention, the you know, most logical answer would be the United States, given the fact that it is Haiti's largest big, stable, rich neighbor. Um, and in fact, the United States has had a long, not always happy to understate it, relationship with, with Haiti. Um, and so far, the Biden administration has, while obviously talking about the problematic situation in Haiti, not been particularly, or it's not been signaling a particular desire to intervene. Uh, so that leads us, you know, in a difficult situation that's hard to predict. Um, so let me start actually with you, Scott. What should the U.S.'s role be here, either, you know, leading this intervention or doing something more general behind the scenes? In a lot of ways, that's really the hard question at the heart of this, at least for U.S. policymakers, but to some extent for the international community as well. The United States has historically played the central role in leading international intervention efforts uh, in Haiti, certainly in the last few decades and really throughout the 20th century, in a lot of ways that were highly, highly problematic. Of course, you had a period of about 20 years for the United States, massively intervened in Haiti, engaged in a lot of pretty uh, malign conduct, also kind of managed Haiti's finances for it in ways that were fairly exploitative in the early 20th century in the kind of the World War One and beginning of early before World War II period. Um, we've seen this kind of difficult relationship as the United States has with a lot of Caribbean and Western Hemisphere nations that is very close to colonialism, kind of a slightly unconventional colonialism compared to European colonialism, but uh, still primarily colonial sort of experience throughout certainly the early parts into the middle of the 20th century. Um, and then in the last few decades, we've seen the United States launch two, at least two, in a way, kind of three separate interventions in Haiti, um, one in 1994 to restore a government that had been removed by a coup a few years earlier, one in 2000, 2004 to kind of put down a second coup, and that became a UN kind of stabilization mission. Uh, and then there was, of course, a US intervention to help support Haiti um, during uh, and after the devastating earthquake or in uh, just about a decade ago you know that that's a little bit of a different mission and, and, and has proven quite as controversial but actually brought with it certain problems which is that these interventions while they may can deliver a lot of short-term goods in terms of stability and security bring with them a lot of economic distortions they bring them with them often a lot of cultural and uh, social challenges uh, in the case of the UN mission it brought with a lot of very credible accounts of pretty widespread sexual violence and abuse uh, committed by UN personnel. That is wildly problematic, but sadly not unique to Haiti uh, among these UN, UN missions. So it's got a very beleaguered history. And so I understand why the Biden administration is very reticent to take a leadership role here, even though it appears to be leaning towards favoring some sort of intervention, particularly with the calls from, from Haitians at this point. It is also happening at a moment where the Biden administration is both committed internationally in terms of Ukraine, has a very concrete foreign policy main objective and priority, that's Ukraine and China, or Russia and China, I should say, Ukraine being kind of the front of the Russian conflict. The Biden administration and Jake Sullivan and people kind of helped shape foreign policy there have been very expressed saying that they think U.S. foreign policy needs to focus on its top priorities and not get distracted by expensive side missions. And this seems like it could be an expensive side mission if the United States were to undertake it unilaterally. And so there are these domestic factors that certainly weigh in addition to the international intervention factor against potential interve intervention. But then on the flip side is not intervening, or at least the status quo uh, 
it comes with a very serious cost, real humanitarian cost for the Haitian people, uh, and then much more practical, self-interested cost for the United States, particularly in massive migration flows that have already started from Haiti and could get dramatically worse. And those flows have been major drivers of U.S. foreign policy responses in past instances, and I, I suspect pressure is going to build again here if they do continue to climb as appears to be likely. So that's really the question, is is how much can the reticence of the Biden administration be broken down? Because it's not clear who is going to step in to kind of spearhead this effort. The United States is really the only major power with a vested interest in this sort of scenario. It's the one that's most directly affected because of both historical and cultural ties to Haiti and the Haitian people, as well as the migration factor uh, and the general, general security factor. The United States also plays a lead role in the destabilization in Haiti for a variety of historical reasons and because, frankly, a lot of the guns that are being used in Haiti are coming from the United States and the United States hasn't done a good job restricting those. All these factors combined just make it a really difficult situation. And I think it all suggests in a lot of other contexts, the United States should take a leading role in trying to address the scenario. The question is whether those pressures to take that leading role will at some point outweigh all the reservations, many of them quite reasonable about pursuing a military intervention again in a country as complicated as Haiti. It's a really helpful overview. I, I want to just follow up with you on one one of the things you said, and I'm curious to get Natalie and, and Quinta your thoughts as well, which is this historical question. So there is no question, right? It is objective historical truth that the United States, along with many other nations, but let's talk about the United States for a moment, has dealt with Haiti appallingly, right? Ever since the beginning of Haiti, right? Which is, of course, the world's first and possibly only truly successful slave revolution. And because of that, it was a real, you know, ideological danger to countries in Europe and also the United States, of course, at the time, which had slavery. And so it was treated terribly. Um, and so, you know, the path dependency you know, persists today. And also given the last few decades of American intervention, again, a very problematic history. Is there, isn't there a danger though of getting too caught up in that history? I mean, at the end of the day, the situation we're dealing with is right now, this generation of Haitians, which is suffering, and there's a potential for this generation of Americans to help. And it does, I do wonder if if the understandable desire of folks to bring up that history because it's an important reckoning, there's a danger there that that prevents the ability to do good, right? I mean, I, I could imagine a, a counter argument which says, actually, no, the real value of the history in bringing this up is to point out the likely effects of any American intervention, especially if America doesn't change its strategy rel- relative to what it did you know, decades ago. But I assume that you know, the strategy in 2022 would be designed based on what we know in 2022, and we don't have to be beholden to history as unjust, admittedly, right? No one's questioning that, as unjust as it is. I, I, I always get worried here. Um, and I say this as someone who studied history in college and loved history and loves history and all of that stuff. I get a little worried when people say, oh, first, we must begin with historical understanding. Because sure, but you can also get you get boxed in by that. And I think a very unhelpful way. I don't know. I mean, I could imagine a a situation in which we do get boxed in by history. But at least the commentary that I have seen around this has been more in the category of, as you say, Alan, using history to understand how these things can go wrong, right? In in the same way that we were talking about the uh, the UN mission and Haiti and how that led to an epidemic of sexual violence, the introduction of cholera, um, many really, really negative effects that Haiti is still struggling from. In the same way, I don't think the the takeaway from the 
U.S. involvement, for example, in the troubled uh, rule and eventual departure of Jean-Michel Aristide, the president of Haiti, is necessarily a sign that you know we should the U.S. should never do anything, but more that those calling for U.S. intervention should be very conscious about the ways in which interventions along those lines can be, you know, buffeted to perhaps ends that might not have been intended or or pushed by by you know forces that don't have really have Haiti's best interests at heart. I do think that you can m- sort of meld all that together by saying, you know, that one way to think about this carefully and in a humane way is to say how do we think about the people of Haiti as people rather than either a symbol of historical injustice or a sort of poor huddled masses uh, with toward whom, you know, white Americans feel pity, but not a real sense of responsibility or empathy, but actually listen to them as people and say, what do they need? What do they want? Not just white, to be clear, right? I mean, I oh, think no, this- no, right. But we are all white Americans talking about this. So that's, that's, that's why I was framing it in those terms. I mean, I, the other thing that I do think is important is that the US conversation around this as we as we sort of started with, is really, really focused on the immigration aspect. Um, I was listening to a podcast on The Daily with a New York Times reporter on the situation in, in Haiti, and what she was saying is that the Biden administration's nightmare scenario, those words, was that this sort of collapse of the Haitian government would lead to a flood of migration from Haiti to the United States as people try to flee and, and go to safety. And I think that it is pretty telling that that, um, you know, the idea of people seeking asylum counts as a nightmare scenario for the Biden administration. We're currently talking, I think, the Title 42, which is the pandemic era measure under which the United States government has been turning back people at the border, is going to expire in just a few days, although the government is appealing a lower court injunction against its use of the authority. And I do wonder if that means that uh, Haitians who are attempting to enter the U.S. and apply for asylum will maybe have a little bit more of an easier time getting into the country. But obviously, that plays into some really ugly uh, domestic political currents. And the fact that Title 42 has become such an important tool for the administration just points to how far right our politics have drifted. All of which is to say that it would be great, maybe, if if the main thing that we could worry about is whether or not the sort of weight of historical injustice on Haiti was what was really driving U.S. decision-making here. But I worry it's more domestic right-wing politics on immigration. Yeah, so before we go to Natalie, I just a quick follow-up on, on this immigration point. I agree with you that saying, oh, the, the real tragedy or the real nightmare scenario in Haiti is these people coming here, right? That doesn't sound great because it's not great. But American politics is what it is, for better or for worse, for worse, frankly, in this case. I do wonder, though, isn't there, maybe in a kind of a perverse but effective way, this this issue of immigration, isn't that potentially the site for potential bipartisan cooperation on providing aid for Haiti, right? Like, look, I think we should have way more immigrants in this country. Lots of people disagree with me. Fine, whatever the case is, right? So go to those people and say, okay, you don't want immigrants coming across the border? Well, then we have to go and provide a lot of help to Haiti, whether it's financial help, military help, you know, aid of of this sort or another. And I'm just curious, you know, do do you think that the Republican Party is sufficiently, you know, internally coherent and can actually like do basic Weberian means ends rationality? Right to say, okay, we, we we have this goal. We want less immigration. Therefore, we are going to do something to actually achieve that goal. Or do you think this is all just going to be a disaster? 
I mean, it would be great if you were right. My concern is that, look, like we saw the same dynamic under the Trump administration. The Obama administration invested a lot of money in the the Northern Triangle, this group of Central American uh, countries, in an anti-corruption initiative to try to cut down on corruption, make those countries you know, safer, more prosperous to limit the the factors that were pushing people to leave out of, you know, the, the need for food, out of safety concerns, et cetera. Uh, Trump came in, scrapped all of that work, like 10 years of work, and said, what we're going to do is we're going to try to fortify the border and we're going to ask these Central American countries to try to fortify the border. And that didn't work. It didn't do anything. And so I worry that the, you know, on the right, the response is, is more to try to, you know, fortify the border and fortify immigration policy rather than to actually look at the cause of what is causing people to leave and think carefully about what the U.S. can do in that context. I would love to be wrong. I I do think it's worth bearing in mind here. This is where conflating Trump and the Republican Party, and particularly Republicans in Congress, can sometimes get you into a little tricky water. We have to remember that Obama initiative did take place with Republican Congress. and That's with, totally true. To some degree, there's a board and certainly there are appropriations, right? And there has been a fair amount of bipartisan coordination around a lot of, frankly, like regional foreign policy, always points of tension and contention, Venezuela, Cuba being like the main ones. But there is, even in the some increasingly contested realm of foreign affairs, in the Western Hemisphere, it seems to be areas where there's more room for cooperation once you get away from those hot points. And I'm not sure Haiti is quite one of those hot points. But I think your point still will take in Quinta. I just want to flag that. I, I agree with this. I think I don't have a ton more to say on the immigration issue and the extent to which that is affecting the Biden administration's calculation about what to do. I mean, it obviously is, but I think hard for us to know you know, what percentage of weight is the Biden administration giving to this vis-a-vis humanitarian intervention for other reasons? I'll just say sort of circling back to Alan's initial point, I think that your question is fair, but also discounts the present role of history and rhetoric around history and how it's being deployed by different factions within Haiti. Um, so the extent to which history is part of the discussion that is essential to figuring out Haiti's political future and has been being deployed how these how these different framings of history and what what interventions happened at what time and who they were supported by within Haiti and how you know Aristide used certain gangs to um try to promote his power and uh, you know opponents did at other times that this history is also very inseparable from domestic Haitian history. And the reason it's a it's a self-perpetuating cycle, and it's also a chicken and an egg situation, frankly, because these interventions have been at not only US interventions, but other countries as well. Um, and in particular, UN interventions have been for a variety of reasons, um, some of them humanitarian, and some of them really self-interested and terrible, as we've said. But they've also been responded to and utilized for the purposes of different entities, different individuals, different factions within Haiti to try to assert power and to leverage those interventions in different ways and shape their narrative of history and their arguments about why they should be in power accordingly. So I think that this is not a retrospective evaluation of history. I think it is you know, it, it's not just a reckoning with with what happened 
it's more about how the existing actors are going to frame what should be Haiti's future and how that will be seen or not by the Haitian people as legitimate. I think those are really well-taken points. And it's a lesson worth also bringing to our current context about how history is used also in framing US or international response of different types. I think this question of international intervention often falls into this problem a little bit, right? We're in the scenario now that we are in kind of a pendulum swing after Afghanistan and Iraq, where we had a period where people were way too willing to engage in intervention. And we've been living through the consequence of that for two decades, where I think people are rightfully wary of intervention. But there's also a little bit to which I think we can let lose a little bit of ourselves in the history or let the history cabin us in a way that kind of Alan was describing earlier on, boxing us in, in terms of ruling out certain options or framing them or tying them such a negative legacy in a way that groups things in binaries or cuts off options without actually engaging in pros and cons or detailed studies saying, here's actually the things that might have worked or didn't work. I really think we're falling for that here. I mean, last time we talked about this, I said, and I stand by this, and I think it's proven true and it's going to prove true, is that we're just going to get to a point where we're going to be left with no better option but intervention. And I think we're getting there if we're not there yet. And I think we need to be honest about the costs and real risks of intervention and the hard parts that come with it. But we also have to acknowledge certain things that intervention might be able to accomplish. And the number one thing that's most kind of an immediate concern, it seems like, for the Haitian authorities and for people in places like Port-au-Prince and other places is reestablishing core kind of basic foundational security. That is not a whole solution. I think in the U.S. history, we have this big problem that we tend to lump everything in as an intervention. And once we solve the immediate problem, particularly to ourselves, once we stop the immigration flows in this case, let's say, it's kind of the most proximate threat to U.S. interests, all of a sudden, U.S. interest lapses, U.S. support fades, foreign assistance fades, it falls off the radar to some extent. Um, and I don't know how exactly how to combat that. And I don't think we should have any naive, naive assumptions about how much intervention can accomplish. But it seems like there are little discrete goals where you could see making progress there. And in that case, if that's true, and I think it is true, and I think there's a good argument the United States is best equipped to do it. Um, the United States has the most substantial military most specific interests. Frankly, they have a military that has the best chain of command and discipline uh, of regional militaries likely to do stuff like this. And frankly, of militaries that usually volunteer for UN missions, the United States is much better equipped. And on top of that, the United States military also has a ton of military personnel used to dealing with civil affairs and domestic law enforcement because they occupied Iraq for a very long time uh, and substantially Afghanistan. And those are actually like really substantial skill sets that are not easy to develop in a military force that a lot of militaries don't have, um, even though there are very flawed ways, things that obviously the military did in both of those countries. They've learned from those experiences, not perfectly, but they they have developed new capacities. There's a lot to be reason to be said the United States should be the leading actor in this. Maybe that's not going to sell domestically. Uh, Biden administration, I I think, would be hesitant to do something like this without congressional support of some sort, uh, something they could use to build a case for congressional support. I don't know if that's forthcoming, particularly in a now Republican-led House. But, you know, I I worry the allergy we've all come up with intervention, a really real founded concerns is leading us to a position where we're ruling actually tools that could be useful off the table, and the result's going to be much more pain felt by the Haitian people and to some extent the Americans as well. Sorry, just just really quickly, Scott. When you say congressional support, what do you mean? I mean, you know, like at the at the top end, there are a, a, A's UMF, all the way down to appropriations, all the way down to a sense of Congress being like we're okay with it. So I'm just curious what you mean by congressional support. 
No, I mean, I think most, frankly, legal scholars would say, uh, well, not not all, but some would say that uh, a good number would say that if you're sending substantial number of U.S. ground troops, as this would presumably entail, um, you should get congressional authorization within 60 to 90 days. And otherwise, you risk violating the War Powers Resolution. And then you're in a position where you're supposed to be withdrawing if you don't get congressional consent. The executive branch ha- has done its previous Haiti interventions without congressional authorization. They've also ended in under 60 days. In 2004, that's because UN troops moved in. And that's in part why UN troops moved in so quickly. So you, the Bush administration didn't hit that timeline and it didn't become a big issue, although it was close, as I recall. I could be wrong, but I think it was close. So there's a real constraint there. Now, in other cases like Kosovo, you know, the Clinton administration basically argued well, in that case, we had kind of tacit consent through appropriations. We think that's enough. And judicial review was kind of less likely to be available there. But in the current charged atmosphere, and because the Biden administration has a lot of reservations about the political kind of valence around doing something like this, I kind of suspect they're going to want something more than just tacit appropriations sign off by folks in Congress. Um, I could be wrong. And as the crisis develops further, that that need might lapse. But at this stage, it seems like they're going to want some political backstopping. Uh, and that just may be hard to get. It's not something Congress likes to give. And frankly, not something Congress has given really very frequently in, in recent decades, um, really since the AOMFs. I'll just echo something I think we've alluded to, but I, I really want to remind people of, which, you know, Scott, you you said a little earlier, there's there's a question here of whether we're losing ourselves. And of course, this is all wrapped up in broader questions about when, if ever, um, it is appropriate to intervene in foreign countries on a humanitarian basis, which of course there is always going to be debate on. There's always the question of if it is legitimate to do so, should it only be through, for example, the UN, um, UN peacekeeping troops or UN humanitarian interventions rather than individual countries. But I I just want to sort of take it back to, and this is echoing something Quinta had said earlier, which is to, you know, we should keep in mind the actual Haitian people and what they might want. My sense of the reporting is that there was actually seemed to be some divisions about whether Haitians want foreign intervention or not. But I I think we just need to come back to how absolutely desperate the situation is there right now. And not only for the purpose of deciding, you know, how scary might it be to people who are anti-immigration that Haitians will be leaving Haiti in droves and, you know, how much that evokes what was happening in the 90s with, you know, people falling off of boats and with the United States having to detain Haitian immigrants in Haitian refugees, I should say, in Guantanamo Bay and tents and all of these terrible images from only a couple of decades ago. What's happening on the ground there is horrifying. There, there are about 8,000 people, I think, who are just living in a square in Port-au-Prince, which is the capital. There are people who aren't able to leave their homes because they'll just be shot. So they can't get treatment for cholera, which is mostly affecting children. I mean, you read these stories and you just think these the people who are living in Haiti right now are experiencing such mass trauma and it's on top of so much mass trauma from you know the earthquake in 2010 the fact that there was a cholera outbreak around that in the aftermath that killed 10,000 people the fact that there was so much political instability and violence in the 90s i mean it's it really seems never ending and of course again to come back to the question of intervention it's it's not going to be enough to you can't go in and fix 
the humanitarian crisis, you can alleviate it. But of course, for the longer term, it will be necessary to figure out some sort of political solution and some sort of arrangement with a government that will be able to stand itself up, provide basic services so that these types of interventions are not required in the future. And and there will need to be a legitimate and credible government. And of course, that is a much more complicated and long-lasting problem than solving the immediate humanitarian needs relating to, you know, fuel and water access and food. Well, from one intractable situation with no clear or apparent solution to another intractable situation that appears to have reached a solution of sorts, uh, good in some ways, but perhaps unsatisfying in others, let us go to the case of Brittany Greiner, who is back at home, thankfully, after almost a year in detention in Russia, after the Biden administration struck a pretty notable deal exchanging her for Victor Boot, a Russian arms dealer um, who has been in U.S. custody for 14 years, having served slightly more than half of a 25-year criminal sentence for material support for terrorism, uh, conspiracy to kill Americans, and a sort of other offenses relating to his international arms trafficking, specifically for a deal related to uh, FARC, uh, designated foreign terrorist organization uh, in Colombia back, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's a big exchange, but one that has proven really controversial for two reasons. One, because people saying, how can we give up Victor Boot, who seems by some people's assessments to be uh, a bigger criminal than, I guess, Brittany Greiner is somebody who needs to be brought home, that there's some sort of inequitable balance there in some folks' eyes. Uh, And two, the fact that she uh, being left behind in Russia is one Paul Whelan, another American citizen, also a UK citizen and Canadian Irish, I think, a number of citizenships, um, who was arrested in 2018 and similarly been held by Russia for several years on the basis of alleged espionage charges that the United States and other governments have said are largely, if not entirely, fabricated as a kind of political chip, which the Russians were not willing to throw into the deal for Griner, resulting in the one-for-one exchange. Quinta, let me start with you on this. What is your sense of the equities here? What do you make of some of the criticisms we're seeing of the Biden administration's choice? Do you think some of those criticisms are reasonable uh, and well-founded or made in good faith? Are they mostly kind of political slaps uh, being made in an opportune moment for what obviously was a difficult decision for anyone in this position, including the Biden administration? And really, what does this tell us about kind of the broader notion uh, and strategy of hostage diplomacy, which is just becoming a more regular reality, um, even than it has been for the last several decades in U.S. foreign policy now with more and more with these peer countries like Russia and China. Yeah, I'll hold off on the sort of strategic question of hostage diplomacy, because that I, my thoughts are, wow, this seems like a tough issue. I'm glad other people are having to think it through. I will say on the the response to Greiner, I think at this point, I'm a pretty embittered and pessimistic person. But apparently, I am still capable of surprise because I will say, I was actually pretty shocked by the vitriol that was coming Griner's way after she was released and came back to the US. So if you've been lucky enough not to see this, there have been a lot of really ugly jokes on the right, particularly, of course, the Trumpist right, about the fact that Griner is a woman, that she is Black, that she is gay and married to a woman. There's a really nasty tweet from Donald Trump Jr. saying that 
Of course, the Biden administration freed Griner rather than Whalen because they were worried that their DEI score would go down. Just really stuff that I I don't know. Like, should I have predicted this? Probably, right? Like the human bile knows no bounds, apparently, as as we've learned time and again. But I, I found it really shocking. You know, it, it recalls, I think the new there's a New York Times story about this that that references the case of Bo Bergdahl, the American soldier who walked off a, a base in Afghanistan, was captured by the Taliban, and and who was eventually returned to the United States. And the, the deal to free Bergdahl was quite controversial under the Obama administration. I mean, the re- her return kind of reminds me of that, except that like she didn't do anything. <laughs> uh, unlike unlike Bergdahl, where which was genuinely just like a, a just a weird case. Um, I mean, Griner is her her sin is that there was a, a trace of oil that had cannabis in it in some containers that she had in her bag when Russia charged her with drug trafficking. Um, she's clearly a pawn. And so I I've been pretty shocked by the rhetoric around this. I think it's also worth noting that. Wayland's family has been pretty out front. They released a, a very generous statement saying that they understood that, you know, that this the Biden administration got a deal that they they felt that they couldn't turn down, that Russia was treating Wayland's case differently. I I don't know. I wonder if that's because Russia is insisting that he was engaged in espionage. And uh, his sister gave a really interesting interview to The Atlantic. And part of what the family is expressing frustration over is the fact that Trump and his supporters are sort of running around saying, can you believe that Biden freed Griner, but not Whalen? The family was begging Trump, according to according to these interviews, to do so much as tweet about Whalen during Trump's presidency when he was captured, and he didn't even bother. So I mean, these are obviously people in extremely desperate situations, and I, I find it really disgusting and disappointing if we're still capable of disappointment that they're being tossed around in this way. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, I think framing this as some sort of DEI exercise is gross. Also, I mean, I, I will say if you're going to frame it that way, at least recognize that um, it's terrible to be a hostage in the Russian prison system, no matter who you are. It's probably that much worse if you're a gay black woman, given everything we know about Russia. You know, the, to me, the thing that is is interesting, in addition to the depressing fact that the you know partisan culture war consumes everything, um, as Quinta pointed out, is that I just I just don't know how popular these hostage resolutions end up being. 
putting aside the kind of the crazy fringe, right, that will always find a reason to distort this, just as a general matter, you know, I'm just not sure how much credit, uh, as it were, Biden will get for this. Now, to be clear, that's not the most important consideration, obviously, but like it is a consideration and it is worth reflecting on. And I wonder if if the reason or one of the reasons is that people recognize that getting a hostage back, even in the sense that it is a local victory, is kind of in some sense always a global defeat. If if you do it in a way that does not end this tactics being perceived as profitable for the other side. And I, I just I just think there's just a recognition generally, and I'm not even sure the Biden administration would dispute this, that you know, any victories here. Well, I mean, obviously amazing for Brittany Griner and amazing for her family. And we should be so grateful for, for them. And, you know, if, if I were in their position, I'd, I'd, I'd be desperately trying to have this resolution as well. And I think this gets to Scott's kind of more strategic question. I just don't see how this does anything other than embolden, whether it's Russia or China or Iran or North Korea or I don't know, whoever next to do this. You know, and, and I do wonder if the American public is beginning to 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 recognize this fact. Yeah, I mean, I think, as Quinta said, this is tied up with broader questions about hostage taking and what the appropriate response is, um, and both in, in the immediate term and in terms of negotiations after the fact. And it's just really complicated. And I think it's both a trend that needs to be thought about, but also a lot of times these these are case-by-case bases and analyses. And, you know, one thing that I think is really lost in some of our domestic rhetoric, unfortunately, is the fact that the Biden administration has made clear that they could not have gotten Whalen out of this deal. And and I believe that Whalen's family has acknowledged that and accepted that that is true. And so, sure, you know, bring up a debate about whether it was more appropriate to try to get Whalen for Victor Boot or Griner for Victor Boot. But it doesn't matter because he wasn't on offer. And the discussion there leaves out the Russian side of this, which is which person are they willing to let go? So the 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 discussion with uh, with regard to Whalen is is really sort of a red herring in my view to say nothing of the fact that he's been accused of different types of of crimes and um, he was apparently not under discussion for this type of arrangement by the Trump administration, as you mentioned. But I, you know, I think it's you have to to look at what the realities on the ground are. So I just want I, I want to ask about this because I, I do understand that Whalen was quote unquote not on the table, but I guess I'm still not sure what that means exactly, right? I mean, everything is always on the table. Like the table is whatever the negotiators want the table to be. So, so I, I, I don't think I don't think you can say, look, we shouldn't consider Whalen here because he was not part of the negotiations. I think you have to say, no, we we chose not to push Whalen because we were worried that we wouldn't get either. But but I think that's a choice. Right? Again, I'm not criticizing the decision necessarily to say, look, we're going to get Griner and we'll deal with Whalen later. But at the same time, I mean, I do think, and maybe this can get into some of the strategic questions of, of you know, how can the U.S. be more effective in these hostage negotiations by bringing in other factors, right, in which it has more leverage than the other side does. But the idea that I think you have to just accept the other side's framing of, well, here's what's on the table. I mean, that's just, that's never true. And, and I do think that's an important point 
not to lose, even as we, again, correct the misinformation about the United States somehow like not caring about Whalen, which is obviously false. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair nuance to add to this. It is, of course, always true that negotiations of this sort require starting with a framing and the framing is usually disputed. But I was I was speaking in the context of the domestic discussion of this. And I think sort of to your, to your bigger point, it's just back to the same really intractable questions about how you set a policy about hostage taking and what the appropriate response is when, of course, it is a phenomenon that keeps happening and you have to worry about incentives and what messages you're sending and how this might affect other countries' calculations or the country that is doing the hostage taking now. But it is, again, like I said, also really case by case and really depends on the individual and the which other countries involved and what the person is accused of and et cetera, et cetera. Um, what else is going on? For example, that Brittany Griner was arrested at the height of tensions between the US and Russia um, on the eve of the Russian invasion into Ukraine, right? I mean, there are just a lot of factors specific to each individual case. And all of this is to echo Quinta's point that this is just really, really complicated. Okay, so I want to take the opportunity um, as a bit of a tangent, but to just give a shout out to what I thought was a really interesting article that we published in Lawfare a couple of months ago, um, which made the argument that Brittany Griner's I was about to say kidnapping. Brittany Griner's arrest um, by Russian authorities is attributable to pay equity issues in the United States in the sports industry, and that we should think of pay equity in the United States as a national security issue in this sense, because Brittany Griner, who is one of the most highly paid athletes in the WNBA, makes $220,000 a year. LeBron James in the NBA makes $542,000 a game. So Brittany Griner, like many, many other WNBA uh, professionals, works on the offseason, on the WNBA's offseason in leagues in other countries. And many of these countries where women's basketball is very popular also happen to be authoritarian countries like Russia and China where this sort of phenomenon is at risk. Um, And so also taking into account the other social factors we were talking about and the symbolic factors of of women athletes from the United States, and especially in Brittany Griner's case of a Black woman who's gay, who's an American athlete, you know, two-time gold medal winner in the Olympics, that this is actually an issue that has some roots that seem unrelated, but aren't in fact are. So I would just uh, encourage folks to read that article from August is by um, Jason Bozakis in Lawfare. So I want to come back to this exchange uh, and kind of logic behind it, because I do think there's some interesting things here I just want to respond to that you guys raised. On, On the Paul Whelan bit on the exchange, right? The reporting we've seen is that the Russians floated trading Whelan not for boot, but instead for another operative of theirs, uh, Vadim Krasikov, who is an assassin who's being held in German prison for basically shooting uh, a t- target of a apparently a Russian assassination, a kind of uh, a guy who was a Chechnya, involved in Chechnyan operations to some extent. 
kind of in, in the open in German Park. And that this was seen as kind of a non-starter by the Biden administration for a variety of reasons because including that this person wasn't in U.S. custody. What I do think it's an indicator, though, is that the Russian see Whalen as probably a bigger fish in terms of negotiating capacity for a variety of reasons, including that, frankly, Whalen is accused of and because of his background as a as a security professional, as a military veteran, can be more credibly framed as a, frankly, like U.S. intelligence operative, even though the United States denies that that's the case. And I think there's every reason to believe that that's not actually the case. You can tie a lot of his activities and make them look a lot more nefarious in ways that might have more leverage in terms of who you're willing to push and trade them for. And the fact that he's been in prison longer makes him more valuable in a way because it's that much more painful for the Biden administration to have him off the book. So I actually think, you know, the fact that Whalen is the one left behind is an underscore of that fact that he's actually a more valuable bargaining chip than Griner is. I think we think of Griner because she's a celebrity and because she has all these cultural nexuses and our domestic politics as being a little higher priority. Uh, certainly that's the way some people are framing it to be critical of the Biden administration. I actually think it's the opposite in terms of geopolitics. At least that's what the way Russia is pricing this strongly suggests. The one thing I would say here in my mind is something we've come back to on this time and time again is that I, I don't think we can criticize people for making these choices. I don't think we should leave Americans who are putting these horrible circumstances behind. And I think pursuing policies that get them released is a good plan uh, and something we should and have to be doing because we should not leave our nationals in the hands of hostile states um, to be mistreated by them. There's trade-offs and obviously you can't trade away anything for that, but making a policy priority I don't think is unfair. That's that the United States needs to take seriously that this is a systemic problem and start cutting off the supply of people who are in these positions. And this is something I'm still surprised we don't see more of. Like the sheer number and volume we have of things like people in the WNBA who are traveling to China and Russia to participate in tournaments or for business travel or for doing all sorts of other activities who are at risk of exactly this sort of detention, I think is really highly problematic. And the United States needs to start seriously thinking about, well, how can we start really not just warning people because they kind of already do that through travel warnings, but maybe deterring people from engaging those sorts of activities, certainly riskier activities than that might be involved, including, you know, potentially carrying medications that could get you in trouble, things like that. And maybe for, maybe for deterring them from doing it altogether. And that's really hard to he say uh, for those of us who grew up in an era of a kind of a global, an open global economy and where global travel was pretty available to almost any corner of the world. But you know, I do think it's just a, as a policy priority, it's something that needs to happen and, and it needs the, the Biden administration and, and its successor be well, well advised to start considering how to structure things in a way that makes these scenarios less likely to arise in the first place, as opposed to cutting off means of resolving them at the back end, as, as some people start to, who, tri- who criticize these exchanges are suggesting. Well, the U.S. has lost custody of Victor Boot, but we now have custody of a suspect, a leading suspect in the 1988 Lockerbie bombing. So this this was a, a long time ago. So just a brief recap. Uh, so this is in December 1988. Uh, Flight Pan Am 103 exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing everybody on board and 11 residents of the town below were hit by various parts of the exploding plane. It was later determined uh, that this had been caused by a bomb planted on board by Libyan nationals, likely linked to Libya's then leader, Muammar Gaddafi. Two were tried by a panel of Scottish judges who were convened in, in the Netherlands, but one, Abu Aguila Mohammed Massoud, uh, was never taken into custody. In 2020, the Justice Department under Bill Barr indicted Massoud for his role in the bombing. Uh, the U.S. still did not have custody. He was in Libya. 
And now, quite suddenly, he appears to be in U.S. hands. It was announced earlier this week that he had been arrested. I believe as of yesterday or a couple days ago, he uh, was on U.S. soil in a U.S. courtroom. It's a pretty astonishing story. And I think there are a lot of interesting angles to it. I mean, as an initial matter, I think for the families of the victims, it's probably really important to sort of get closure for this event in their lives that had never really definitively been resolved. Um, And I know I've seen victims writing and speaking about that. But there are a lot of questions, including, you know, how difficult is it going to be to bring this case against Masood 34 years later? There are particularly, there are some strangenesses around the confession that he allegedly gave to a Libyan official, um, and I believe 2012 after the, the fall of the Gaddafi government. And there's also some weird circumstances around his handover to the United States, which I am calling a handover rather than an extradition, because it, it seems like things might have gotten a little hinky to use a technical legal term. Natalie, why don't I turn it over to you? Because I know you've been thinking about this and curating lawfare coverage. What do you make of this development? Yeah, I think, as you said, the the things that are of particular interest to me are, you know, okay, so what happens next? And that has a lot to do, of course, with what happens to get Masood into U.S. custody. And there are a lot of concerning things that are being reported about that. So as you said, the confession on which it seems the U.S. will be building its case, although of course we don't know because they haven't started making arguments in court yet, though of course we can read the indictment, was in 2012, soon after the fall of Gaddafi, who is someone for whom Masood was working as an intelligence agent. So this was under, you know, new rule, recently deposed administration for which the defendant who, who supposedly confessed made this statement. And he was then detained for a long time. He had been serving a sentence, a 10 year sentence for crimes other crimes unrelated to the Pan Am Flight 103 issue until about six months ago, and then was released. So there's there is a question to me of why was his release not negotiated with Libyan officials from Libyan prison? Because obviously, as you said, Quinta, the indictment was in 2020. So he was he was not extradited from Libyan custody where he was already serving on unrelated charges, but rather released and picked up by a militia that is affiliated with the, the current prime minister, Dubibe, whose role is contested right now because he was part of an interim government for which his mandate ended about a year ago. And so to me, there are a lot of questions wrapped up in what all of this says about Libya and what's going on there but of course in with with what is of concern to us what does all of that mean and how was Masood treated in custody how was he treated in his being picked up by this militia group um, and being transferred from the first militia group to another militia group to US custody what happened to him then that's going to affect his trial in the United States and the admissibility of any evidence that comes from there and just general due process concerns. I think there there are just a lot of things to this. Yeah, this is a really interesting case. And in some ways, it's kind of riding off a pattern that we've seen 
we've actually seen a number of criminal suspects extradited, uh, which I'll, I'll use in quotes a little bit because it's not clear there's a conventional extradition in all cases. In some cases, rendered might be more appropriate um, out of Libya over the last few years. We, we had, I think, at least two criminal suspects related to the Benghazi killing, the the, the attack that killed uh, Ambassador Chris Stevens and several other Americans uh, at a diplomatic facility in Benghazi in 2012 that have been found, brought back to the United States and prosecuted in federal courts. And this is kind of following that model. Um, it's worth noting for folks who, who haven't followed this stuff, um, the United States has a legal doctrine around this, has for a very long time, that that basically says no matter why this criminal suspect has found its way into your jurisdiction, they can be tried. Um, maybe they'll have legal claims against other people for unlawful conduct, but it doesn't affect jurisdiction over them. Um, it's called the Kerr-Frisbee Doctrine. And this is why for a long time, actually even more before 9-11, but even after 9-11 substantially, you would see terrorist suspects either kind of be lured to your jurisdiction uh, or sometimes in cooperation with foreign intelligence or law enforcement agencies just kind of transported back. And so you will read in a, compl- a criminal complaint the Justice Department prepares, usually in the Eastern District of Virginia or uh, in New York Court. In this case, it was in uh, DDC. It looks like here in Washington, D.C. The complaint will they say the individual was thereafter found within the United States without much explanation about they arrived there, in part because it's not actually legally relevant, at least under existing precedent. A lot of people are highly critical of that. Uh, maybe there are some moments that haven't been tested by the courts yet where that would, would give way, but that doesn't seem too likely here. Although I think all those issues about who transferred him here because of the state of Libya, all the different facts here, very real policy questions, particularly in terms of the exchange and the fact that no one seems to be taking responsibility very well might be suggesting that I reflect the fact that domestically politically controversial potentially, um, or that maybe it was a faction that's not the recognized government that uh, the United States usually deals with that only controls part of the country there, in effect. In regards to this particular case, I think we need this is a this is a big victory. I think we should acknowledge that. It's important for the United States to keep chasing terrorism suspects even decades after the fact. Other than the fact we owe it to our victims, the Pan Am 103 bombing was the biggest attack uh, in terms of fatalities to Americans until the 9-11 attacks. It is a major monumental event in American history that has been overshadowed a little bit by the 9-11 attacks, but nonetheless really weighed in the national psyche for a long time for for good reasons. Um, And it's important the United States keep pursuing that for justice for the victims and frankly to deter people engaging in this so that they know they're not going to be free from it really any time in the rest of their natural lives. So I wholeheartedly support the Justice Department doing this, but we should not have have no illusions. I think this is going to be a really hard trial. Uh, and I'm really curious what the Justice Department strategy is here. May, Alan, maybe you have some thoughts on this. I'll know for historical reasons that the actual trial that took place in the Netherlands under Scottish law before a tribunal of Scottish court, this was the terms that uh, Libya negotiated when they handed over the other prior two suspects for this attack, one of whom was acquitted ultimately in 2001. The other one was convicted and then subsequently released on humanitarian grounds once he was diagnosed with terminal cancer about 10 years later. That trial was really problematic because at that point they were trying people for an incident that had already at that point happened 12 years earlier. There was a lot of questions about witness credibility in part because people had fuzzy memories and it was a high profile event and they were being a lot of the testimony and evidence boiled down to a specific bag and clothes bought at a specific bag that was loaded on an airport in Malta, transported to London, and then moved on to this flight that eventually detonated that a bomb was packed in. So they were asking things about storekeepers, about what they sold in a given day, and how to interpret their receipts and bank records from 10 years earlier. Super complicated case to build with this big a passage of time. Now we're dealing with an additional 10 to 20 years on top of that, depending on what time period you're talking about. 
And the biggest thing that the FBI uh, affidavit that supports the complaint, the like public record we have, hangs its hat on in terms of the evidence they have regarding this individual is this 2012 confession they gave to a Libyan police officer and a suggestion that that police officer, at least in, t- in 2012, was willing to come to testify in the United States. Obviously, 10 years have passed since then. And I'm not even sure that would necessarily be admissible. I guess there are ways you could get in as a business record or as a, you know, a sort of other sort of evidence. But usually, you know, just that sort of blank confession without any other evidence, I I, I think it'd be a a loose thread to really hang a case on. Hopefully there's more than that they have, but Libya is a really hard environment in which to gather evidence. And a lot of other evidence has gone away. Maybe there's more forensic evidence that didn't come forward in the, the earlier trial, but We'll have to wait and see. Um, I, I'm assuming DOJ has a plan here, and I suspect they'd be willing to take a big swing at this. I do think, regardless, I understand why they took the big swing on this. I think it's important that they did it. But I'm really curious to see how this goes, and I suspect they are facing big challenges down the road. Scott, since, since you did name check me, I will say that my extensive, extensive trial experience in which I spent an entire six months being really, really, really bad at my job in Maryland uh, leads me to conclude with high confidence that yes, I'm sure DOJ has a plan. I mean, I actually I am curious about this because so the the indictment was announced by Bill Barr in 2020. Obviously, Barr's Justice Department had a track record of sometimes you know popping off in weird ways. Is there any reason to wonder whether you know, let's say? They secure an indictment. Barr has this big press conference. New administration comes in. There's an opportunity to pick Masood up that the Biden administration's hand is kind of forced or that the calculation is is shaped by the fact that the previous administration secured an indictment, even if that's not necessarily something that this administration would have done. Or is that too like five dimensional chess? I don't know. I mean, I think it's an interesting question. And I, I think the initial indi- the timing of the initial indictment is also interesting. Um, and I'm sure there is a lot of backstory here about which I'm unaware and, and maybe is non-public. I'm not sure. But, you know, one thing we didn't mention is that the, I think, at least in the popular consciousness, the identity of Masood as being associated with this um, came from a, a 2015 documentary by Ken Dornstein, whose brother was killed on Pan Am Flight 103, and who did a documentary series, deep dive research into what had happened and discovered Masood in Libyan custody in 2015. Um, So of course, a documentary does not make for enough evidence to reach an indictment. But that was something that a lot of people have identified as being sort of crucial in tracking him down and affiliating him with this incident. Although, as I said, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot more going on beyond this behind the scenes that I'm not aware of. But, you know, I don't know why 2020 was the year of the indictment. And I don't know why the timing was what it was, as as you asked, Quinta, but and also as I had referenced before, why why the six months passed where after he had been freed from official Libyan custody was his his transfer to U.S. custody then rather than while he was still in Libyan custody. I'm entirely speculating. My suspicion, though, is that they've pursued the complaint to try and do a formal extradition through one of the legal authorities in Libya, either the recognized government uh, or maybe some other pseudo-governmental authority, and that did not work. 
And maybe they pursued some other avenue for acquiring custody over him after the fact, particularly after he was released. That That's my suspicion at this point. And that could have been a lot of different things, whether working with a militia group, maybe special forces soldiers were sent in, as was done quite openly, uh, as publicly reported in prior cases. So there's a way, variety of ways they could have accomplished custody over this. I don't think anything that the Trump administration could have done would have bound the Biden administration to pursue that step, Quinta, to answer your question. No, to be clear, I, I just meant in in terms of sort of changing the calculation. I mean, you know, certainly like the fact that they obviously ID'd this guy and had eyes on him made it a tempting target. But I think as a matter of US policy, really, there'd be a strong push no matter what the administration is to try and achieve custody and and, and prosecute somebody like this because of the gravity and custody of these crimes. Just the real challenge you may face is that the United States has very real evidentiary bars for very good reasons in its criminal process. We have a strong, robust system of criminal defenses for a good reason. And the, you, you can often surmount those international jurisdiction cases. I think a lot of criticisms of that um, have been proven wrong in the fact that we routinely do prosecute you know, foreign terrorism suspects uh, in U.S. courts for crimes targeting Americans. But ones this old pose real challenges. Uh, and we've already seen those challenges in a very real way in Scottish court uh, the last time around. And they've only have gotten worse in the last 20 years. So so I do I do think it might be an uphill. One thing worth noting, this individual has also implicated himself in the same confession in the LaBelle discotheque bombing. This was an earlier attack that occurred in 1986, where he also claimed to have designed the bomb with uh, for uh, in the same manner as he did with Lockerbie. So it's quite possible that maybe there's additional evidence or additional charges that could be brought related to that incident. And I don't know enough about exactly what the evidentiary trail. I don't think anyone's ever been tried for that. There is a responsive military strike on Libya, as I recall. But that was kind of the full scope of the direct, you know, kind of public U.S. response that I can recall. No criminal prosecution. Uh, and two, at least two, maybe more U.S. service members were killed in that attack. I think it was two with many more injured. Uh, so, So there could be charges brought from that. Also, the other thing I did notice in that complaint, they go spend a lot of time on this particular type of timing device that they have forensic evidence they think was used in the in the bomb. So it's possible maybe that they can tie this guy to that that timing device if he's the person who designed it. But again, that's that's just a far cry. Again, particularly for technology that you know the people who designed it and would be able to do that sort of fine identification haven't used it in 30 plus years um, because it would have predated the attack substantially. So again, it's it, we'll have to wait and see. It's going to be a really challenging prosecution, but I'm sure DOJ has a plan. I, I, I want to know what it is. I'm very curious. Yeah, I just want to add one other quick point, which is to say, in addition to the evidentiary challenges that come from the passage of time and the environment that Libya is and was, there's also, as I alluded to before, the question of how he's been treated in custody. And if you're his defense attorneys in the United States, you know, the one of the militias that was involved in handing him over to the US has been pretty consistently um, accused of human rights violations, including torture. Um, and that will most certainly come up if there if that is grounded in his defense in US courts. So that's something to be taken very seriously. Uh, well, folks, we have to leave the conversation there because we are rapidly running out of time, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us? Why don't you get us started? So I am delighted to announce that there is finally a good new Star Trek show. As loyal listeners will know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I am Star Trek over Star Wars all the way, and I will engage anyone endlessly on the social medias about this issue. Uh, and I just have to say, I've been a little disappointed with the first of the two new Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery and 
Star Trek Picard. I'm not a hater of those. I think they all have their strengths, but I think they have their real serious flaws. And I'm just delighted uh, that the uh, newest series, which actually came out in May, but I was so disappointed in the first two, I didn't even watch it until last week, Strange New Worlds, which tells the story of the Enterprise before Kirk takes over, when it is still under the command of the excellent Christopher Pike, is fabulous. And it is... I don't know. It's it's kind of it's it's sort of what I think we were all hoping for when we learned there's going to be a new Star Trek uh, series. It's fun. It's nicely updated, uh, but it still has that Star Trek swagger. So run, don't walk to your nearest streaming enabled television. Pay your whatever nine ninety nine for Paramount Plus, because what we all need is another streaming subscription and watch Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. Quinta, what do you have for us today? I have a piece of pop culture from a little farther back. I would like to recommend Don DeLillo's classic 1985 novel, White Noise, uh, which I reread because uh, none other than Noah Baumbach uh, has a movie coming out. I guess it is in theaters now, though not on Netflix. Um, a movie adaptation of White Noise, a book which I previously would have said would be you know, completely unfilmable. Um, and it looks kind of great. It has Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig in it. Uh, so I, inspired by this, went back to the novel itself. And I will say it really it really holds up. Um, I mean, DeLillo is an incredible prose stylist. It's super readable and funny. There are certainly aspects that maybe hold up less well in 2022 than they, they did when they were written in 1985. But overall... It is, um, as the New York Times wrote in a, a profile of Baumbach around the movie, a surprisingly contemporary feeling novel. It's all about sort of living in an age of overstimulation um, and consumerism and also unending dread. Uh, and it, it feels very apropos for our current circumstances. So I would like to recommend that uh, those of you who are inclined, pick up the novel, and I will definitely be watching the movie when it is available on Netflix. I thought the movie looks great. I'm really excited about it. There's a really, it was a really good profile of Bumback, and I want to say it was a New Yorker. Or yeah, New that's York that's the magazine. one I was thinking of. Yeah. So it was really interesting. Yeah, I'm very excited about that movie. But for my object lessons, we are still in the month of December, and that means that I am doing holiday themed only. And so I'm bringing to you this time yet another holiday music suggestion to feed, build on Soul Christmas last year's, perhaps my most notorious of all object lessons that I had in all the prior year. Uh, still highly recommend that one. Uh, Earlier this year, I also recommended uh, Lowe's uh, Christmas album, which was also phenomenal. But I'm going to recommend this time an album that I find myself coming t- back to time and time again every year. Um, a kind of famous one, but one that not everybody's aware of. Called It's the New Possibility, John Fahey's Guitar Soli Christmas album. John Fahey, kind of a famous kind of avant-garde folk bluegrass steel blues guitar folk artist basically rearranged and produced this really lovely very innovative interesting christmas album it's the perfect music for like listening to background while contemplating over a hot cup of warm something staring out on a snowy blizzardy day that doesn't really happen here in washington dc around the holidays at all maybe a month or two later every couple of years but nonetheless it's a great album to contemplate over and it's like interesting enough to keep you interested and not be boring regular christmas music it's traditional enough to satisfy your family members like traditional stuff um Fahey did a bunch of christmas albums this is his earliest one uh and there's also really cool liner notes that are worth finding 
because he's a very big student of music and they're very contemplative and reflective of both religion and philosophy and music, uh, which really is in sharp contrast with his interviews of why he built this album, which is why he's, which he said he built, produced it because he saw Bing Crosby selling all those Christmas albums every year and he wanted in on the action. But regardless, it's a phenomenal listen. Uh, I highly recommend it uh, and it's worth revisiting or visiting for the first time this holiday season. Natalie, bring us home. What do you have for us this object lesson session? So I have recently been on a um, short story fiction kick. I, as will not be foreign to any of you fine people, um, I read a lot of news and listen to a lot of newsy podcasts and analytical things and foreign policy and law and read lots of legal opinions and blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that reading fiction written by just truly superb writers is delightful, especially when it has nothing to do with all of the other things that you have to read for work and life. So I will uh, just mention two things I've been reading lately. One is very surprisingly, I had not heard of this author before, though I wouldn't be surprised if I've read his stuff before in The New Yorker. Um, I read a story in, I think, a November issue of The New Yorker called Princess by T. Corrigesson Boyle. I apologize if I mispronounced that name. But it was just so fantastically written, and I really, really enjoyed it. Short story, as I said, so easy to get through, especially if you're prone to falling asleep um, while you're reading at night because you have a three-year-old. The second thing I've been reading is a collection of short stories by Hilary Mantel that she wrote early in her career um, and had been off of my radar until I read a profile of her and her career after she died recently. It's called The Assassination of Margaret Thatcher, a collection of of short stories, and it's also been really, really excellent and just sort of a nice way to engage with literature in bite-sized pieces and have a little bit of escapism from the uh, otherwise occasionally heavy things that I have to read the rest of the day. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Be sure to follow us on at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you are at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Go Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quinten Allen, and our special guest, Natalie Orpit, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. <laughs>